The reading for today is from Philippians chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Ashley. That is a magnificent passage of scripture, but it's not the one we're looking at this morning. I don't know what happened there. Sorry. What? <laughs> I am the leader of this congregation, so whatever happened there, it is my fault, so you can email me. Uh, we're looking at Philippians chapter 4, verses uh, 2 through 7. Uh, but I'm going to start at chapter 1, I'm sorry, uh, verse 1, uh, because we need the context of what Cody finished with uh, last week in order to move forward. Uh, but a couple of things before we get started. Um, first of all, you know, Cody's out for the next few weeks, and uh, really just want to thank um, Chandler for coming and leading us. He came in all the way from Gateway, so uh, we got him a hotel for like three weeks, and you know, no, but anyway... He's from the Gateway Congregation. We really appreciate him coming and helping to uh, uh, lead along with all of our, our regulars that are on the platform uh, leading us into praise, which is really good. I just got back uh, earlier this week from, um, it's our annual pilgrimage for eight days to Wisconsin. We have this weird family tradition where we go to Wisconsin early July in order to watch the early rounds of Wimbledon in Wisconsin. I don't understand it, but it's fun. We go up there, and then we sit around all morning watching tennis. And then we go shopping in the afternoon in Wisconsin. But I will tell you, it's, it is wonderful. It was beautiful. It's wonderful. Those of you who really think that Austin and Nashville and Charlotte are like the new hot cities to move to, you really need to look at Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I'm telling you, that is, it's an up-and-comer. You don't believe me. Anyway, um, one last thing uh, before we get into this. I do want to mention, uh, for those of you not on social media, which I applaud you, but at any rate, if you're not on social media, um, you didn't uh, find out that, uh, or you weren't uh, reminded that this is the Sunday that we are burning the lean. Anybody remember that? Yeah. So um, in order to acquire this property, we had to take out a loan from Big R Redemption, for $600,000, which we have now already paid off. We paid it off earlier this spring. And we wanted to choose, hopefully, the hottest day of the year to go outside and have a little burning of the lean ceremony. So um, uh, we still have our, our mortgage with fir uh, mid-first, which is fine. But uh, this was a big one that we wanted to get, uh, to get taken care of. And you guys, again, the way you stepped up for Alhambra, you've stepped up for us as well. Uh, really appreciate it. So we're going to go out there right after this um, uh, this service uh, will be out there on the patio. We got a Mr. Softy uh, food truck, so there's going to be ice cream. And so I, I, I just want you to understand the object lesson there, okay? 
when you pay off debt, debt bad. When you pay off debt, you get ice cream. Do you understand that? And I want you to tell your children that. Tell your children, okay? No debt, ice cream, okay? That's kind of the way we do it. So he'll be out there until, I don't know, 11 or 11.15, something like that. So have at it. Have a great time when we're out there. We'll, we'll go out there right after this, um, uh, this service. We're rounding the last turn on Philippians. If this were a 400-meter dash, we'd be, we'd be finishing the first 300 meters right now. So let me pray, and we'll get into it. Uh, Lord God, we're grateful for your, uh, your love and your grace, which just continues to be manifest all around us. Um, uh, to be able to give testimony, uh, first, the way J.J. does of, of standing firm, which is something that Paul says even in this passage today, um, but, but also the testimony of how uh, your people respond to our needs, whether they're here or whether they're in another congregation or whether they're in a completely different part of the city. Um, the, the witness and testimony to your love and grace is powerful. Uh, so we know your Holy Spirit is here. We know your Holy Spirit is working it is again my prayer uh, that we would welcome you, that we would open ourselves up to you, that we would, we would orient ourselves towards you and not away from your Holy Spirit. Let us recognize that the greatest thrill, the greatest pleasure, the greatest joy in life comes by being filled with your Holy Spirit. Help us to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, I want to mention the construction uh, of, of this letter. It's different. There's different genres in the Bible, and you, and you work through them in different ways. You read them, interpret them, them different ways. This is a, a first century uh, Greco-Roman styled letter written by a Jewish guy, so there's some infusion of some other cultural uh, uh, items in, in that as well. But what we're going through is essentially a letter. It may not be a letter that you're used to receiving today, um, but if anybody even writes letters anymore today, but, but at any rate, it, it's, it's a letter. So this letter is going to have instruction and then application, and then instruction and application. It doesn't so much tell a story, but it instructs us. It tells us about truth and then helps us to understand how to apply it. And I just want, I think this is being about a, a, um, a 75 percent of the way through the book, I think it would be a good time to remind us of the main themes in this letter. So here you go. Paul emphasizes unity in the church. That's a big theme in this letter. Second of all is his desire, his overflowing desire that we would join him in his joy in the gospel even in the midst of suffering. That the gospel can even um, overwhelm us in, in, in the midst of our suffering. I know suffering is hard and that doesn't mean that we want to um, be flippant about suffering. It's just the truth that suffering um, uh, can be overcome with, with a gospel orientation toward life. Paul's genuine care and compassion for this church keeps coming out over and over. You saw it again even last week. Uh, Paul's occasional but timely and very direct corrections for the church, uh, which are important. Paul's call to be steadfast and firm in our faith. You heard J.J. say that uh, 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 in the interview. And then Paul's strict warning against false teachers and false gospels. In all of these topics, Paul dutifully and joyfully uh, gives us instruction and then helps us to understand how to apply that in our everyday lives. So uh, I want to start again with where Cody left off last week with verse 1 because it helps us with the context of the following six verses. 
So Paul writes, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So that word crown is what I was just drawn to uh, immediately when studying this. That term crown also in other ancient um, texts uh, from the first century, that, that word is also translated as garland, okay? So um, a garland, so a crown, like a, a nice royal crown that you'd wear on your head, but also a garland. Um, those of you that are horse racing fans, and we don't necessarily promote horse racing in the church, but nevertheless, if you're a horse racing fan, that, that, that run for the roses for the Kentucky Derby, that is a garland, and that is such a coveted garland. It's, it's, it's like the biggest prize in horse racing. You understand there's 554 roses in that garland that you win at the Kentucky Derby. And I say all this to help you understand, these aren't just words that Paul's passing out here. Uh, again, he is showing a deep care and compassion for the people in Philippi. He has deep relationships with them. He's not writing a church that he doesn't know. He's not writing people he doesn't know. He has a deep love and, and a gospel-centered, fully developed, fully committed relationship with these people. He's saying the church at Philippi, the people at Philippi, Paul has a respect and a love for them that has become part of his DNA. It's not biological DNA, but it's spiritual DNA which can be more powerful even than biological DNA. He says, you're my crown, you're my wreath, you're my garland, you are my joy. How many of us have ever experienced this? I know I have. You meet a fellow Christ follower on a plane or at a conference or at a dinner party, and you have a conversation with them, and there's a connection there that is deeper even than you might have with somebody that you shared actual biological DNA with. That happens all the time, I find. It, th there is a spiritual DNA here that Paul is talking about that is really beautiful. A and he calls them his crown. L let me ask you, you don't have to answer, just think about this. Have you ever had anyone describe you as their crown? As their guard? Have you ever, think about it, has anybody ever given you a compliment of that sort that's even in that area code? Or better yet, think about it this way. Have you thought recently about who your crowns are? Who the people in your life are your crowns, your garland, your joy? And, and here you go. And have you told them recently? Have you shown them recently? Uh, even people that you haven't spoken to or seen for years, but but you remember, and they did something significant in your life. Maybe you never told them how that has stuck with you. Maybe it's time to tell them. Maybe it's fine to let, time to let them know. Maybe, maybe here you go, send a text, but I, maybe go one step further. Actually, actually try to find their physical address, and then, and then go to paper source and buy a card and write something in the card, get a stamp, I know it's like 52 cents or something, and, and put your return address on there and send them a card. Maybe, maybe they're local, you could take them out for, for coffee. Maybe you could get them a Bosa donut even. Let me tell you something, you get a three-day-old donut even from, just buy the donut and keep it in your car. You hand it to them three days later. That three-day-old donut, if you're telling that person you're my crown, that donut still tastes good, believe me. Because it's not about the donut, it's not about the the coffee, it's not about the card, it's about the acknowledgement, it's about the relationship, it's about this spiritual DNA. 
You have no idea what kind of impact you could have in somebody else's life by simply acknowledging the fact that they've been a crown for you in their life. And then Paul, again, he says, stand firm, stand firm. And based on what Paul writes in chapter 3, clearly this is a command, to, again, to stand firm against the false teachers and the Judaizers. We talk about how Philippians is loaded with all of these nice, easily dissected sections that we can preach and teach on. Um, what we need to remember, though, is that there is a distinct narrative flow that goes through this letter. He's connecting thoughts throughout this whole letter. And, and so we have to remember, as we're in verses 2 through 7, that they are connected to chapter 3 and chapter 2 and chapter 1, and that they will connect us to the rest of chapter 4. We also have to remember that, that flow that is there. So he says, stand firm against these false teachers. Don't dishonor the true gospel of Jesus with falsehoods and foolishness. And, and, this need to stand firm pushes us into these next six verses. That's why I wanted the context. So look at verses two and three. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So, Iodia and Syntyche. Some scholars will tell you, this is the whole reason Paul's writing the letter. He's writing a bunch of other stuff, but what he really wants to get to is this rift between these uh, two female leaders uh, in the church. By the way, does anybody have two Y's in their name? That's kind of a cool thing to have two Y's in the nose. Nobody, yeah, that's kind of cool. Anyway, so that's a, just an idea for a children's name if you're, if you're pregnant or thinking about having children. Syntyche, it can be pronounced Syntyche, that's kind of cool too. Um, anyway, these two women in the church at Philippi, clearly they're leaders in some respect. They are not getting along. But you have to have verse 3 with this as well because verse 3 gives us the irony. The irony is that they seem to get along with and work well with everyone else so they have the ability to be in good relationship but the two of them not so much they have this issue uh, going on here so um, what happened well we don't know Paul doesn't give us any details but perhaps there's a little Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 in there perhaps there's some selfish ambition and vain conceit going on with these two women. Perhaps they're engaged in what we might call competitive ministry. Have you ever seen that in a church? It, it would make a great reality show, but it would also look really bad for the church. Competitive ministry. Um, maybe that's what's going on. Well, Paul entreats them. And that's a very strong word in the Greek. It, it, it means to plead excessively. Um, if he were texting, he would just keep texting over and over, entreat these two, entreat these two, entreat these two, just constantly to agree in the Lord. And I, again, I think these are, uh, this is a reference back to a couple of earlier verses, chapter 2, verse 2, where he writes, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord of one mind. It's not that you don't have um, diversity or a difference of opinion, but in the Lord, you have to agree on these things. Or... Chapter 1, verse 27, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
And then, you know, who's Clement? There's some historical studies on that. You can look that up. Clement was kind of a, a common name, though, so we can't really nail it down. But of, of greater mystery is the true companion. Who is the true companion that, that Paul would like to have help mediate this situation? We are not sure. And speculation abounds. And frankly, even if we did know who this true companion is, it would not make any difference to any of us today. Unless, of course, you did 23andMe or Ancestry.com and you found out that you were related to this true companion in Philippians 4. That would be a t-shirt to wear. I'm related to the true companion in Philippians uh, 4. That's the only reason why we would care. But what we do know is that sometimes, sometimes, a third party can be a catalyst for reconciliation. Now, understand, this is not triangulation. Triangulation and mediation are two completely different things, and I hope you understand this. Triangulation uh, works like this. Sorry, John and Bob, I'm going to use the two of you. Okay, John and Bob are, aren't getting along. They don't, they're, they're angry at each other for some... John, meet Bob. You don't like him, okay? So, oh yeah, you guys know each other. All right. So, all right. So instead of going to Bob, John comes to me, and he says, hey, Frank, Bob, blah, 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 Bob, blah, 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 Bob, bad dude, Bob, 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 Bob. Now go tell Bob. And like an idiot, I go and tell Bob, hey, Bob, John said blah, 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 blah. What does Bob say? Oh, yeah? Well, John, blah, 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 John too, bad dude, okay? That's, that's the way it goes. And then I have to go back and talk to him, okay? Just totally ridiculous and destructive, unhelpful, okay? Uh, what he's calling this true companion to do is mediation. In other words, these two are at a point in their relationship where it's so broken that they wouldn't know how to start reconciling. They wouldn't know how to start that, but they're both willing to do it. They're bo they both want to try to do it. That's a key. They both have to want to try to do it. You can't get two people to a, to a table if they don't want to get to the table, but they both want to do it. They just don't know how to get started, and maybe that third-person mediator can do it, and that's what Paul is encouraging him uh, or her to do in this case. And, and, and he says at the end there, he talks about the book of life because ultimately that's the goal. And, and uh, this book of life, first of all, you need to understand, you could say it this way, the book of life is Jesus. It is Jesus. It's, okay, you think, God's got these names written down somewhere of all the people who are in the gospel. That may or may not be true, but what I do know is that if you're in the book of life, you are in Jesus. That's the key. So the book of life is essentially Jesus. And the book of life mentioned here, this is not the only place that it's mentioned. It's mentioned in Malachi 3. It's mentioned in Daniel chapter 12. If you're interested in reading Daniel chapter 12, that'll be a challenge. But it's also uh, in Revelation chapter 21 as well. Uh, this, this is actually the goal, to be found in Christ, to be found in the book of life. So Paul reminds us of that. And then we get to verses 4 through 7. He wraps up this little section by saying this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'm going to say it. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness, sometimes that word is translated gentleness, let your reasonableness, gentleness, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That's also translated as the Lord is near. Okay? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, first thing, I want you to see the pattern here that Paul has. Verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. Verse 2, agree in the Lord. And verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. You see that pattern, right? Everything is pointed towards the Lord. It's the Lord, okay? It's hard to miss when we put it that plainly and that simply, but we often miss it because we're just so naturally tuned into self. We, that's, that's, that's what has happened to us because of sin. It, uh, Luther described it this way with the Latin words incurvitus in say, human beings are just naturally curved in on ourselves. That's just what we do. Um, when things aren't going well, when we're unhappy about something, when we're challenged by something, this is what we tend to do. We tend to withdraw and pull in. When, when we're in the midst of tremendous sin, we tend to uh, pull in. When we just want to live for ourselves, we curve in on ourselves. Uh, Redemption Church has seven core values, and you hear one of them every single Sunday. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused the opposite of incurvitus and say. We, we, we believe the gospel transforms our lives so that we, we start to look outward. Try, human beings never have to be taught self-love. They never have to be taught self-interest. We don't have classes on self-indulgence or self-obsession. We don't. We, we don't even have classes on the selfie. We just naturally know how to do that. It's left hand or right hand. Magic Johnson of selfies, I'm telling you. you know. Is magic so old that that's an irrelevant <laughs> illustration? No, I, sorry. We have to be regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, by the gospel, to even begin to understand the dangers of incurvitus in, say, and the need for our lives to be poured out rather than sucked in. When we do this, th there should be a great sucking sound that goes with it because that's just what happens. We're just sucking everything in on ourselves. So Paul says, Paul starts in verse 4 with rejoice in the Lord always. This is our icon verse here. This is again a verse that everybody seems to know even if you don't go to church. Rejoice in the Lord always. Um, some of you may be familiar with a guy named John Piper. Um, he wrote a book in the 90s. I can't come up with the name of the book now, but it's a book about Christian hedonism. Has anybody read the book? So, many, yeah, okay. Isn't that an interesting idea, though? We're told as Christians that hedonism is bad, but he's saying, no, there is actually a hedonism that's really good. If you're going to pursue genuine pleasure, if you're going to pursue genuine joy, if you're going to pursue genuine fulfillment, which you should, you're going to find it in Christ. There is Christian hedonism. There is a hedonism that we can find in Jesus Christ. This hedonism that we're pursuing in all of these other places will never fulfill us like Christ. It's, it's a fascinating idea. Seek your hedonism in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. True, pure joy comes from relationship, not our circumstances. Happiness, which is fine, put me down for a yes for happiness. I'm a big happiness guy. But happiness is almost always determined by our circumstances and not by relationship and reality. Joy is determined by relationship and reality. Joy is determined by the gospel. Our desires 
always turn us toward what we think are going to make us happy, and that's why we don't turn towards Jesus. And, and so happiness drives our desires. Joy should be driving our desires so that we're driven toward Jesus. The problem is, for many of us, C.S. Lewis wrote about this. In fact, I'm going to sort of paraphrase him in a minute, but C.S. Lewis wrote about this. He says one of the challenges that people have with Christianity is that they think Christianity is not strong enough for their strong desires, that it's not going to be satisfying enough. And C.S. Lewis says, no, and Piper would say the same thing. No, you've got it all wrong. C.S. Lewis, it's the mud pie uh, quote. Let me, let me paraphrase it here. C.S. Lewis writes this. Our desires are not, in fact, too strong, but they are too weak. We are not full-hearted creatures, but we are half-hearted. We chase after and fool around with sex, drink, status, fame, power, and wealth, and we fail to realize that infinite joy, love, grace, and satisfaction are found in Jesus. There is great pleasure in Jesus. We need to come to him. But we are like a poor child who wants to go on making mud pies in a trash-filled field because he cannot imagine or understand what a vacation in Maui would be like. That's the problem with misunderstanding true hedonism. Lewis wrote about it. Piper wrote about it. And I think they're, I think they're right there. And then verse 5, he says, let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everybody. But what does that mean, that word reasonableness or gentleness? The best way to understand this word is in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs that the way we are to live our lives as Christians is to over-deliver. We are to over-deliver. If uh, the centurion asks you to go one mile, you are to go two miles. We are to be people who over-deliver. We, we are to rejoice and serve others in a way that actually makes a mark. That's what that word is trying to get at. And then I'm going to spend a little time on on this next phrase, the, the Lord is at hand or the Lord is near. I think there have been books written about this one little clause. I don't think you need a book, but it's ironic that I'm going to talk for a few minutes about it um, because it's not that hard to figure out. It's not that difficult to understand. What does it mean that the Lord is at hand or that the Lord is near? Is it, is it um, temporal and physical? Or is it existential and eternal? And the answer is yes. It's both. Because Jesus can do both. And he is doing both. Okay? So Jesus is always with us. Jesus said we, he will never leave us or forsake us. He is always present with us. His Holy Spirit longs to fill us. So he's here temporally. But also... He's coming again soon. He's coming again soon. And I know the first question. It's my first question, too. Well, how many years in a soon? That's what we want to know, okay? It's a good question. I have no idea. But whatever it is, it's not that long when you start to think about how God understands time because he exists outside of time. He's not bound by this time constraint that we are. He's not bound by a timeline. He... He exists outside of that. So Jesus could come in 20,000 years. He could come in a billion years. He could come in 100 years. To God, it doesn't, it's, it's like not this, it, 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 there's no difference. It, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't matter to him. None of them are that long for God. But the idea is this. As Paul tells Timothy in one of his letters to Timothy, 
You are to be ready for Jesus in season and out of season. You need to live your life in faith. The question isn't when, so much as are you living your life in faith? Because he's coming. Uh, for whatever reason, when, I, when I'm dealing with this, I often think of the story of Joseph in, in Genesis. So Joseph uh, ends up, uh, he's the son of Jacob, the son of Israel, the favored son. He ends up in prison in Egypt, far away from his family. His family thinks he's dead. He's in prison. He's there unjustly, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. But he's making the best of it in prison. Uh, some of the guys in prison know that he's pretty good at interpreting dreams. And two guys who had very significant positions with the king of, I of Egypt, the, the pharaoh of Egypt, uh, the cupbearer and the uh, baker, these two guys are in prison too. Apparently they offended the pharaoh some way. So they're down there with Joseph and they each have a dream one night. Pretty big dream and they can't figure out what the dream means. So they go to Joseph and they say, can you interpret our dreams? And the cupbearer goes first. And he tells Joseph his dream, and, and Joseph says to the cupbearer, well, here's what's going to happen. In three days, Pharaoh is going to determine that your crimes uh, did not take place. You'll be forgiven, and your head will be lifted up. You will be exalted, and you will be restored to your position. And the cupbearer has a very close relationship with the king. And so the cupbearer celebrated this interpretation. He went off and packed his stuff to leave the prison in three days. So the baker, hearing this interpretation, he goes to Joseph. He's like, okay, I'm here ready to hear my interpretation. He tells uh, Joseph his dream, and Joseph says, mm, your head will be lifted off in three days. Not up, but off. I'm sorry, but you are guilty of your crimes, and, and you're going to be executed. So not so good news for the baker. Well, in the meantime, Joseph then goes to the cupbearer. He says, look, you're getting out. I'm here unjustly. You know I'm here falsely accused and unjustly. When you get to the king, when you get to the pharaoh, I know you have a close relationship with him. Tell him about me. T tell him to get me out of here. T tell him to right this wrong, to, to make something just out of this injustice. Get me out of here. And the cupbearer is like, yeah, okay, fine. And so imagine Joseph. He, he's, he's there. He probably goes and packs his stuff the day after the cupbearer gets out. So now he's sitting on the edge of his little cot in prison with his stuff all packed waiting. And then a week goes by. They don't come and get him. Then a month goes by. He starts to unpack his stuff. Finally brushes his teeth for the first time in a month. And, th and then a year goes by. He's back into his prison life. Living faithfully because the Lord is with him. We're told throughout that story. Another year goes by. Two years. And then suddenly something happens to the Pharaoh. It jogs the memory of the cupbearer. And he says to Pharaoh, oh, I got just the guy for you. And more than two years after this happened, they come and they get Joseph out. Here's the point. We're not in charge of when. We so desperately want to be in charge of when. We spend so much time thinking about not all of us, but some of us. I've talked to some of the people that do this, thinking about when is Jesus coming again and trying to do this crazy biblical math that nobody understands and you can manipulate any way you want. When is he coming again? When is he coming again? We're not in charge of when. So why do we keep trying to figure that out? We're in charge of being faithful. And the only way we can be faithful is to stand firm in the Lord, to agree in the Lord, to rejoice in the Lord, 
to be filled by the Holy Spirit. We are not called to attempt some sort of biblical math. Jesus even said in Matthew 24, 36, no one knows the day or the hour. He said, I don't even know the day or the hour. Jesus said that. Okay? Here you go. I'm going to hang in there on this a few more minutes because I just think this is helpful for some of us. Anybody ever heard the name Harold Camping? Anybody? Harold Camping? A couple of you. Oh, yeah, I remember that dude. Okay, he's passed away since, but um, in, in uh, early 2011, he came out and he said, I've done the math. I've looked at all the prophecies. I've figured it out. Jesus is coming May 21st, 2011. It was a Sunday, by the way. Jesus is coming May 21st, 2011. He put up billboards all over the United States and started raising money. Do you know he raised more than $100 million for this? His ministry did. More than $100 million, okay? Um, May 21st, in case you hadn't noticed, May 21st came and Jesus didn't come, okay? Um, and, and by the way, I went ahead and prepared a sermon for May 21st because I kind of have this, if, if somebody says he's coming on this day, that's the day I know Jesus isn't coming. Because Jesus said, nobody knows the day or the hour. And of course, after May 21st, here's what Camping said. By the way, this was his sixth, count him, sixth time that he had said, Jesus is coming on this day. His sixth time, and people still gave him more than $100 million. Okay? I, I'm telling you, it's very tempting to get into ministry for all the wrong reasons when there's people like that out there. I'm telling you. Okay? Sixth time, and of course, after he didn't come, what did he say? Uh, I... I forgot to carry the two. That, you, you know, it's, I, I miscalculated, okay? How many times are we going to fall for this? Anyway, I have a very good friend, woke up that morning, and the first, first thought he said was, oh, I must not be a Christian, I'm still here. Then he, he showers and he gets dressed for work. He works for the Kansas City Royals. He's driving down to the stadium because the Royals had a home game um, that, that day. And on his way down at 7 o'clock in the morning, on a Sunday morning, he, uh, on the side of Interstate 70 or whatever it is, uh, he, he sent me this picture. He texted me this picture. Somebody had bought in advance, and they unveiled this billboard at midnight at the crack of May 21st. That was awkward. And then Matthew 24, 36 no one knows the day or the hour. No one. Yeah, but Pastor Frank, let me just tell you. Please. Trey, where are you? Find Trey. He'd love to talk to you if, you if you know the day or the hour. I'm telling you, the minute somebody, the minute somebody says, I know, I just I know that's when Jesus isn't coming. That's when I can let my guard down. That one particular time. So the Lord is near us. He's at hand is both. It's temporal and eternal. Got it? I spent enough time on it. You got it? Okay. Jesus is with us and he's coming for us. So rejoice, live in hope, and be an extra miler. And then in verse 6 he says, do not be anxious. Let me tell you, that's a hard call, isn't it? Do not be anxious about anything? There isn't anything we can be anxious about? I'll tell you, the worry-free life is, some, is something that you and I, all of us, we've all dreamed of, right? That worry-free life. But the problem is, is that we have these other emotions as well. For instance, love, a different emotion than anxiety, okay? Love can't help but create concern, right? Love is, uh, love is often a catalyst for us becoming concerned or anxious or whatever, 
Um, and, and our desires, our fleshly desires, those can cause great anxiety as well. The, the, the notion of scarcity, you know, we, we wake up every morning just worried about scarcity. I didn't get enough sleep. I don't have what it takes to get through this day. I hope I have enough money to pay my bills. We, we, we worry about scarcity. The psychologist Jean Twenge asserts that we live right now, she's written several books about this, we live in the most angst-ridden, anguished era in history. And the irony, of course, is look at all the stuff we have. Look at all the wealth we have. Look at all the conveniences and comforts we have, and yet our anxiety gets worse, our depression gets worse, our stress gets worse. We think all of these things are going to solve that problem, and they don't. Paul says, here's how you solve the problem. So even with all the success and prosperity that we have in and around us, we can't help ourselves. We just keep giving in to anxiety. In Paul's day... The Stoic philosophers tried to remedy this by just saying, look, just live with no emotion whatsoever. Never be happy about anything. Never be sad about anything. Just be emotionally blank, no matter what happens. The Phoenix Suns won the NBA title finally. The Phoenix Suns are moving to Las Vegas. That's how, that's how the Stoic philosophers would call us to live. Just push away all those emotions. Live without emotions, okay? Because caring is just not worth it. Every now and then, where's my phone? I didn't bring my phone up here. I should have brought my phone. Every now and then, I'll run into somebody who's been really hurt by a romantic relationship. And they will say something like this. I am never going to love like that again, Okay? Well, let me tell you something. Somebody named Dionne Warwick wrote a song about that in 1970. Do you remember? What do you get when you fall in love? You get lies. What are the, some of the other? You get lies, you get heartbreak. And then she said, if only for a minute. That, that's funny that she hedges her bet. But then the big, the big line is, I'll never fall in love. Okay, just remember Dionne Warwick, not my voice. But I'll never fall in love again. That's what she said. Okay, here's the deal. I understand that. You're hurt. I've been hurt before. But that also means you'll never experience any of the positive emotions that are associated with that either. You're going to live a really boring life. Okay? Listen, as the uh, scientist Greg Easterbrook says, there are always trade-offs in our world. The sweet always, always comes with the bitter. That's what happens in a fallen world, in a world that's corrupted by sin. There is always bitter that comes with, with the sweet. But the hope that we have is in God's sovereignty. Again, this is that future hope that Josh talked about the very first week that we started this series. But anxiety can also be a gateway emotion to other even more destructive feelings and thought patterns. The word here, anxiety, describes not just an anxiety because we're worried about something, but it describes a dread that leads to cynicism and anguish. It's dread that leads to cynicism and anguish. Those are worse things than anxiety, for cynicism and anguish have the power to paralyze us. And Satan, the enemy, he loves that. That's why we must be people of prayer. So Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So we pray and we seek peace 
Peace seems to be the antidote to this type of heavy anxiety, and prayer is the pathway. Prayer, and prayer, Paul describes prayer really with three words in this passage. One of them is interpreted as prayer. Literally, that word interpreted prayer is spoken words. Have a conversation with God. And remember, that conversation is not supposed to be one-sided. Here you go. God doesn't really care for me, monsters. I don't know if you've noticed that. But if you're the one doing all the talking during prayer, that's not going to be very helpful to you. Uh, God would actually like to participate in the conversation. He might have something to say. Uh, then there's that word supplication. We often understand supplication as praying on behalf of someone else, and it does carry with it that understanding, but it's actually um, more a word about how you need to understand that the, the one that you are praying to is the only one who can meet this need. He's the only one. You can't, you can't find any other way to be able to meet this need. It's a, it, it communicates a sense of complete reliance. I have no one else that I can turn to. We find this all over the lament psalms in the Old Testament, how they end. There's lament and complaints and, and anger and, and whining even. But, the, but everyone but one of those lament psalms ends in a particular way. And that is that I, I, I have no one else that I can depend on but you, God. And then he says thanksgiving. Thanksgiving comes before gladness. Thanksgiving is what leads to gladness. We get this backwards all the time. We get this mixed up. We want to be glad, and then we'll be, and then we'll be thankful, which honestly doesn't usually happen. Uh, I had, uh, one of our staff members described it this way. Cheap gladness is gladness without gratitude. That's cheap gladness. The gospel lives, calls us to live in gratitude no matter what the outcome because God is sovereign. And again, in the Psalms, there's more than 70 of these lament or complaint Psalms. Um, they all end with this gratitude, except for just one, just one. Because for the person of God, their joy and happiness are not rooted in circumstances, but in God in the fact that he is with us, and we need to remember that. By the way, regarding prayer, this is kind of funny to me. I run into this all the time, and I even, years ago, I used to think this way too. A lot of people think that if they just went to a class on prayer, we need a class on prayer. If they went to a class on prayer, they would do more of it and they would be better at it, okay? I, what I found is that this is really more of an excuse than a reality, okay? Prayer isn't that hard. It's not. It, it, prayer is essentially two things. And I would say the first is listening to God. Mother Teresa once wrote this. Prayer is not always asking. Prayer is putting oneself in the hands of God at his disposition and listening to his voice. Somebody asked Mother Teresa how often she prayed, and she said, I pray about two hours a day, and sometimes I actually say something to God. She listens. And then the second thing is speaking to God, having a running conversation. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. And I know some, somebody will always say, well, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, you can't pray when you're driving. Look, having your eyes closed and your head bowed is not the only way that you can pray. It's not the only posture of prayer. Okay? You, you actually, in fact, when we're driving, it would be better if we were praying rather than cursing. Amen? That would be a better thing for us to be doing. But you can pray with your eyes open and your head up. That's okay. 
because prayer is listening and speaking. It's this running conversation. Also, you want to know how to pray? There's this incredible book called the Psalms, 150 prayers. Pray through that. Also, who taught the disciples how to pray in the first century? Did they, I didn't, the church at Colossae is having a three-week class on prayer. We'd like you to come. We have child care as well, okay? okay that, that just never happened, and yet they prayed. They prayed, okay? So let's quit coddling ourselves about prayer. Let's just do it. And then he says, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, the answer to anxiety, peace through prayer. He says it surpasses all understanding. Understand, that means it is transcendent. The peace of God, when we finally experience it, is, is, is challenging to articulate. His peace just is. It's transcendent. And here's what transcendent means. It means it's not bound by time or space. It's not bound by any context. It exists everywhere all the time. And this peace guards both our hearts and our minds. It guards our ability to reason, and it guards our passions. It guards our feelings. And it guards us from these very things that we wrestle with daily. Anxiety, cynicism, fear, temptation, and arrogance. And we need to remember this simple truth. You and I cannot have the peace of God until we have peace with God. You need to come to Christ first. That's what Jesus did for us. He settled the score. He settled the issue. He paid for the sin on the cross. And by coming to him in repentance and faith, that's where we find our peace with God so that we can have the peace of God. His sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, the gospel story, is exactly what gives us that peace. Uh, let me just end. This will kind of be our benediction to this um, sermon by reading how Jesus puts it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not of more valuable? Are you not of more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, or where shall we work, or where shall we live? Or who's going to follow me on social media? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient is the day in its own trouble. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, again, we thank you for your word and its truth, and I just pray that we would, uh, we would appropriate these words, these truths to our lives, and we would apply them as you call us to apply them to our lives. 
God, we thank you for Paul and his ministry and the fact that he was in prison suffering greatly when he wrote these words to us, and yet he's filled with joy. Help us also to live a life like that. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.